You're listening to the C Word Radio, the podcast where we ask, what the fuck does young cancer survivorship mean? With me, Helen King, and guests. Subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Today we're delving into the back catalogue of the C Word Radio and revisiting one of my favourite interviews. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss an episode. Katie Glennie was diagnosed with breast cancer at the start of lockdown in 2020. But the shock of her cancer diagnosis isn't the only major health crisis that she has faced in recent times. She was also diagnosed with multiple sclerosis around six months before she received her cancer diagnosis. Katie had spent time as an adult in Te Nui Atara before moving to Topo with her husband and their daughter. Katie got in touch with me because she is training to do something pretty extraordinary. Prior to cancer and MS, she was a very active woman who did huge treks through the hills of New Zealand. And after she was diagnosed and went through treatment, she really struggled to get back to that place where she felt like herself and that she was able and capable to do the things that she could do quite easily before cancer and MS. She loves tramping and so she is now training to do a huge peak in the Southern Alps. It's 3,000 metres, which is an extraordinary adventure and an extraordinary goal. She's doing that to raise awareness for MS. I think that a lot of us will relate to Katie's story. I know I did. Katie and I started our conversation about the way that we have both spent a lot of our adult lives putting pressure on ourselves to be busy, to achieve, to be constantly striving for that next thing. This is Katie's story. Actually, there's a little part of me that wonders if people that get ill, people that maybe push their bodies too far. So it's not always the case, but I think that's probably been the case for me because I've really pushed in my life to achieve a lot, to follow my passion, to look for purpose and to in all aspects, even when I'm outdoors, I'm I'm walking 10 hours, not four hours. I'm climbing a high peak, not a little hill. And I think over time, that sort of drive inside of you started to realise, and it was through, definitely through my medical sort of journey, through my cancer journey, but I've also been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis recently. And it just threw all of that in my face. And I started to realise that even if I wanted to live like that, my body didn't want to live like that. And then I also started to realise maybe that rushing and gathering of experiences and achievements wasn't really required to find a, a beautiful life. Like they were just things you were collecting on the way and your kite was getting fuller and fuller but it was actually getting much heavier to carry. And did you need to put all those things in there? So it took me that medical, that realisation that my body was frailer than I thought to realise that mind-body connection is so vital and nourishing your mind along with your body leads to a much better outcome. And it's funny because some of the things that I really appreciate now that I glossed over before 
are those quiet treasured moments of like when I'm with my daughter and we're walking and the sun's filtering through the leaves of the trees and we can hear the birds all around us and we just stop and wonder at this magical moment. I'm not trying to rush through those times as as I was before. Yeah, it's quite an intense lesson to learn, isn't it? I was thinking as you were talking, because I really like being in the bush, we're near the Waitakere ranges where we are, and it's always been somewhere I enjoy being in, and for a long time I couldn't walk cancer, the treatment really grounded me, it really took its toll on my body, and just recently, because we've got these two young active dogs, and they've been driving me nuts, because I work at home <laughs> the past couple of weeks, I'm like, right, out into the bush and I'm marching you through the bush until you calm down. Um, it is like having children. I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it really was about going to get up this hill and yeah, this is quite nice in here, but it was about that kind of slogging it out. But with the dogs, because they love sniffing and checking things out, it really does make you slow down and go, Oh, wow. This is mm. really beautiful. Yeah. It's funny, eh? Because so your dogs, they're like sniffing some new scent or they've <laughs> gone off the side, checking something out. And I, I think for me, like if I put myself in that moment, initially I'd be like, oh, just aren't we going somewhere? Why are we stopping? Like, this wasn't my plan. Yeah. And then you work my way through that. And then I think, oh, look at that beautiful tree. I've never seen that fern growing on that tree before. Yeah. Or, oh, that's an interesting bit of moss that's over there. I wonder what's underneath that. And you, you don't see those things when you're rushing and you're trying to achieve your ambition for the day. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. To, and to be fair, my young daughter does that too. Like we do overnight tramps with her and she, her little legs, they get tired and she wants to stop and she wants to look at something. Mm-hmm. And at the start, you're like, oh, gee, get there. <laughs> and then you just breathe and you slow down and you find that there's things that, that you can enjoy about those moments as well. Yeah, I was thinking about this recently, actually, because I definitely have been a perfectionist and it's still something that plagues me. And I think for me what it is that I get that sort of into that fear of failing and not being perfect and all of that stuff. And I read what that does is that it means that I miss out on that wonder and and of that, oh, mate, if you make a mistake, you can learn. And sometimes a mistake can actually end up being a happy mistake. But we lose that from our childhood. Like children just do things. They're so in the moment in their emotions and just trying and, and things. And yeah, we really lose that as adults. And I don't know where it gets beaten. <laughs> we lose it somewhere. And the schooling system is yeah. where it's out of you. Because, <laughs> yeah, we're told that to achieve and achievement looks like this. Achievement doesn't look like learning and wonder and failure that leads to new knowledge. Achievement looks like doing it right every single time. Yeah. And and that's a real sadness because I see I'm quite involved in the sort of sustainability side of, of things and I see the many mistakes that we have made over time in, in our business processes and in our approach to, you know, making profit and, and um, making an economy turn that all of those lessons and little signals that we could have, have looked out for, we just bowled through them and yeah. then we got right to the edge of the precipice and we're like, oh, this wasn't where we were supposed to be walking to. 
Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting that sort of perfection is is an interesting thing to dig into and observe and think is is this serving good purpose in my life, meaning that I'm not able to see some other things that could serve me. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I, having cancer and going through chemo and things, really made me, I mean, it stopped me. I mentioned before, it stopped me in my tracks. And I had to really listen to what my body's limits were and let go of certain things because you think, I can't actually do that or it's just not possible for me to do that because I even wanted to do that perfectly. It was like, I've finished now, I've got to get healthy again, I've got to do this and this. And I just came apart. <laughs> just so, un- so hard because I, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I actually had to readjust my definition of who I was or my internal understanding of who I was because I thought I was someone um, that was capable of doing all these things. And then I realised that either I was never that person or I certainly wasn't that person anymore. (laughs) And that was really confronting, this idea that you just keep pushing and if you try hard enough, you'll get there. Yeah, uh, that was absolutely baked into me. You just didn't try hard enough. You weren't determined enough. You didn't shut down all of those little signals of pain and fear and concern. You just dissolved, and you weren't yeah. capable. Yes. <laughs> and then I was like, "What? What was the point of learning that? Because what that taught me was how to get multiple sclerosis and cancer. And obviously, it's not as linear as that. Many things go into someone's medical makeup. But in the end, I was like, clearly, that hasn't helped me to date. And yes, I've had some wonderful experiences, but a lot of those times, I was pushing so hard to get there, I didn't even look around on the yep. journey. Yeah, and I found that really hard to think I was actually a different person to who I had thought. I was. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's really strange. I guess we should go back a few steps. You've had these two major health things happen in a very close time, and one of those things on its own is huge when your health is under that much pressure. Remind me, which came first, the cancer or the MS? So the MS came first, and MS is often something that you've had for a long time before you get diagnosed. So I now know I've had symptoms of MS for probably almost 10 years, but I was diagnosed two years ago. Actually, maybe almost three. I get my dates confused. And then about six months after that diagnosis, I had my cancer diagnosis, my breast cancer diagnosis. Wow. And it was just before lockdown. It was just the the most intense. Anyone that went through medical stuff in lockdown will know what I mean. Like I... I had just decided to get about to get early mammograms because we had some family history of cancer, and my neurologist has said, "Look, sometimes with MS and with some of the medications we put you on, it can increase your risk for some cancers. So, why don't you just start screening um, earlier?" And actually, she's American, and she said, "In the states, we all start from age forty, and I recommend that to all my patients anyway. That the risk is high. You should just." It's not that expensive. If you can afford it, just go and get an early mammogram. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll put that on the list. And and I rocked in there. And then then I suddenly, they were like, okay, you better come in now because we don't know if we're going to be open over lockdown because at that stage we didn't know if anything would be open. So I went in there, had the screening. I was all very rudimentary. And then I got the phone call the next day and they said, 
you need to come in today. And I was like, my heart just sank as shit. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. Yeah. People don't do that unless it's important. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, you have to come in today because we may be closed tomorrow for who knows how long. And we don't have our, our specialist here. So we're going to have to get him on the phone while we're doing the scans to see. So it was all suddenly you sort of rushed into this weird surreal experience so I had the ultrasound and the woman's oh this all looks fantastic and I'm lying there thinking what am I here for <laughs> she rings a specialist and then she comes back and her face is a little bit more kind of blank she's like oh just do a bit more just do a bit more of this ultrasound and I'm like no that's not good and then yeah and it was just then I had to go and get a biopsy in Rotorua in lockdown and it was really weird driving on the streets nobody that was at the point where no one was driving anywhere there were birds all over the road because I was driving on these back country roads that normally there'd be cars on and so there birds just living on the road because they like they could there were people going for walks down the middle of the kind of main highway because there were no cars and they're really enjoying the opportunity to step out of their driveway and have no traffic and yeah, no, we had the biopsy and every it was like, normally they try to make that a really kind process, but it, it wasn't really. It was, you have to stand there, don't touch anything, wait till this other person has moved out of the room. There's, there were no kind of nice, like they had like paper towel on the bed because they weren't sure if they could wash linen. And then I wasn't even sure if I could shake the hand of the guy doing the biopsy. I'm like, oh, what? And yeah, it was so weird and I had to go alone, which was really difficult. You know, like they talk about, they have all the signs on at the GP and the hospital. Do you need a support person? Just let us know. Um, I freaking need a support person, but I can't have one. Yeah. (laughs) So... And they, they didn't have the same access to equipment at that time. For various reasons, COVID meant that lots of things were put on hold in case they would need them. They weren't sure what medical supplies they need. So therefore, that meant I had 10 biopsies instead of one because it took that long to get. <laughs> and he would shuffle over to the, to the mammogram machine to see if he got the right sample. And he'd say, no, we have to try again. And then he went, it was just, it was hideous. So, yeah, so then I, like, drove back from Rotorua to Taupo, which is an hour, and just rang my husband on the way back and was just in floods of tears on my own in the car saying, this is not going to be good. The guy who'd taken the biopsy just said to me straight up, he's like, you're going to need a mastectomy. Didn't do any of the gentle kind of. (laughs) So we might be looking at something. It was hideous. It was so bad. And, yeah, and everything, like, and then all those prelim meetings you're supposed to go to the hospital for, I was like, not only did I not want to go, I didn't want to go on my own, and I didn't want to, Every time I was going into the hospital, I felt the risk was high because we didn't know what the COVID sort of situation was. So I was like, can't you do it over the phone? Can't we talk on Zoom or something? But they weren't set up for that. Yeah. Wow. And I, cause what really springs to mind as you're talking is that process feels lonely anyway, even when you have people around you. It's really frightening, but then that must be amplified when you literally have no one around you to be there, to, even to listen to what the doctor's saying, because it can be difficult just to be processing all that information. So did you go on and need a mastectomy? 
Yeah, then after that, I convinced them to do one of our hospital interactions over the phone. Yeah. And then I did this. They do like a, a kind of checklist for any single medical thing that's ever happened to you before you go in for a surgery. They say, when you were born, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and this woman was trying to do it with me over the phone, and I couldn't hear her very well. And I was like, it took like over an hour just to go through this questionnaire. And then, so that was all done remotely and then so then when we went into the hospital what I had decided with the surgeon because I was we were at level four when I got the diagnosis and he did it over the phone with me which was my preference because I said if I come in because they said we really need to see you and I said I really need to be with someone that is much more important to me than you being able to see me yeah yeah I need, if I can't come in and have someone with me to hold me and to listen to what's going on, I'm not doing it. That's basically what I said. So they were, all right, then we'll do it over the phone. And then and then I said, okay, the next hurdle that we have to overcome is we have a young daughter. We are at alert level four. We are all in our little bubbles. We're not sharing bugs with anyone. I can't ask anyone in my community to look after my daughter. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, all of my whanau is up in Tamaki Makoto, so it's really just us here. Yeah. Um, the three of us, um, and I said, is there any way that we can delay this surgery? So I had a big, it was DCIS that I had, and it was quite a large section, quite a big amount of DCIS, which is why I needed the mastectomy. And he said, the good thing about DCIS is it's not yet cancer. And it took me a long time to work out, why do you have a mastectomy if you don't actually have cancer? Yeah. <laughs> It might not become cancer. And then I found out there's millions of women around the world having mastectomies who don't actually have full-blown cancer yet. Wow. Like this massive preventative surgery for something Mm -hmm. that isn't yet killing you. But anyway, I worked my way through that mentally and realized at some point it could turn into cancer and with our family history it probably would. Yes. So then I was like, okay, I need this mastectomy, but I don't want to do it if I have to go through that whole surgical process alone. I just, that thought of walking that journey on my own was so terrifying. It was more terrifying than the surgery itself. So in the end, he said, look, we can wait. We can wait until it's the right time for you, which I was so relieved and appreciative of. And so as soon as we went to alert level three, it was just this sigh of relief. And then mum came down from... Tamaki Makoto and she came to stay with us and look after my daughter, another good friend, just with the timing of her coming down and the surgery, another good friend had my daughter to stay um, for the night before. Mm-hmm. And then my husband could come with me. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's not like your husband stands there in the actual operating theatre with you, but it's the bit where you walk in there. That's the worst bit of the whole thing. It's just like walking in there and thinking, shit this is happening yeah oh I'm, I'm i can really just in my mind's eye i can feel and see that totally and i can still remember that what the nurse said to me and walking into that operating theater and seeing all the different people oh and there's a hundred people in there 
And I, I thought it was just me and the surgeon. So there's all these other people like fiddling around with bits of equipment. And I'm like, I know it's really weird, isn't it? And you get getting, it's weird. I can almost feel like getting up onto that beard and then yeah. all of a sudden your body now is, they are in control. But I had this lovely South African nurse and she was hilarious. She was really straight up and very South African. And she said to me, as we walked down that corridor, she said, we're going to walk in there and you're going to see a lot of people and I don't want you to worry because we're all in there for you. And it was just, Um, okay. (laughs) Because it is just like we were saying, you walk in, you go, oh, hello. (laughs) Welcome to my mastectomy. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be a fun ride. For all of you, I just, oh. yeah, and I, I, I didn't, a nurse didn't say that to me, but I had a, a younger lady and she held my hand really tightly because at that point I left my husband in the waiting yeah. area and I walked down there with her and she said, you're too young, you're too young. And it just, I looked at her and I said, I oh, know. But it was funny because it made me sad, but it was so wonderful that, Someone had seen that in those that small little sentence. She encapsulated everything I was feeling, and that was just wonderful to be seen like that. Is it not just this this patient that was being processed through the system, but as an actual person that was going through this this journey? Yeah, it is important, isn't it, to have those sort of recognitions and, and realizations? And it sounds as well because you're having that done while we're in the different levels and. Yeah, the medical system was on high alert, but life goes on and all these things go on. Births keep going on, chronic disease diagnosis keeps going on, and it's amazing to have to respond to that. Did you need any other treatment after your mastectomy? So one of, I guess, the wonderful things about having a mastectomy at this DCIS or kind of pre-cancer stage is often you don't have lots of sort of treatment that happens afterwards. I was really fortunate that they took some lymph nodes out for a biopsy. It hadn't spread anywhere. They found a small amount of cancer in my breast, but very tiny amount. So they said that I didn't need further treatment. And it's a funny thing, a mastectomy, because it's like prior to having it, I would have done anything to prevent that. I would have been like, surely I can have radiotherapy or mm. chemotherapy or something and hold on to the to this part of my body. Afterwards, I thought, well, now it's done. Mm. There's no worry. I'm not wondering if maybe there's something lingering in there or I might have to go through that treatment again and I could just put it the full stop in that part of my life and think now I can move forward so the emotional journey prior to the surgery was really difficult I thought a lot about how I was losing part of the of my body that had fed my daughter and nourished her part of my sense of strength and I guess being a woman is to me was wrapped up in removing part of myself that could could feed my child and then I did all of that processing before the surgery and after the surgery I was able to let it go. Wow did you have reconstruction? Yes I think it was probably partly to do with the COVID alert levels they did the reconstruction at the same time because they were they wanted to get everything done at once and I just went through the public systems so I didn't have lots of different options as to what to do because it was actually a bit of a decision for me 
to do about the reconstruction. So I'm a really active person. I do lots of things in the outdoors and I wanted to do something that would have the least amount of impact on the rest of my body, on my muscle structure, on my strength, on the functioning of my body. So I chose to have the implant in front of um, my pectoral muscles. Yes. It doesn't look amazing. It looks fine, but it doesn't look as good as it probably could have done if I'd chosen another option. But if I'm honest, that just does not concern me. What concerns me is to have a strong, healthy, functioning body. That, for me, was a really good choice. It gave me lots more mobility. I didn't have another section of my body that needed to recover because maybe people that have the other options then have to recover maybe their abdominal muscles or their back muscles. And it's given me, yeah, there's been less sort of side effects from that, choosing that option, which was for me. But I totally get why people make different choices because they have different kind of frames of what they're working because I haven't had reconstruction and the one that they said that I should have was, yeah, either Diep, Clap or I can't think of what the other one, the ones where they take... A weird name, so yeah. I now imagine it because I actually don't want any more surgeries on my body. I've got one boo, but I don't love it. <laughs> but I'm used to it now. But it's really interesting hearing your experience because I can get very pragmatic when things that when I get into that sort of I guess design and I thought right I'm going to prepare myself for what it looks like of what no not having a boob looks like and I was actually unprepared for how emotional it was or how yeah traumatizing it was to see myself without a breast like I actually couldn't look at it for a couple of days and the nurse started to notice that I wouldn't look when she came in to look at drains and things and I don't know it it was more confronting than I think I realized it would be to have that gone and I think yeah I don't know what it's like for you when you see your reconstructed breast because obviously it's different but was there, um, has there been a process of accepting or getting used to the, having a reconstructed breast in place of your other breast? It's really interesting that what you're talking about, you don't want to look because if I just ignore it, then maybe it didn't happen. <laughs> then, yeah, because I, I, I had to make myself look. It was like ripping off a band-aid. I was like, you just need to do this because this is going to be you now. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it looks a bit bumpy and at that point it's really swollen and stuff. But I was like, oh, actually all my skin's still there. (laughs) It was weird, of course it is. But I didn't really think through what, that you put everything back and then you just put this insert underneath it. Yeah. Because it's, oh, that kind of looks a bit like it's still me. (laughs) So... (laughs) So I think in in a funny way, it was almost a bit less confronting because I had thought a lot about not getting reconstruction. And at some point down the track, because I I asked this, I said, look, if it's really not working for me, can I just get it taken out? And they said, yeah, absolutely. But that's always at the back of my mind. If I'm like, oh, this is just proving to be too problematic, then I'll just get it taken out, which is another benefit to having it over the front of your pectoral muscle is that it's... I think, relatively straightforward to get it removed. So in some ways, it was better than I thought. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's still my skin and, you know, that little mole that's there, that's still there and yeah. looks a little bit weird and I've got this big scar and it's a bit bumpy and lumpy, but it's like you're, like you've got the nice 
sort of rapping on it. Everything's, um, and then actually they used to, I think in the, in the old days, they used to take your nipple off or most of it off because they were worried about cancer being in there. But the surgeon said there's a very minor risk that it could happen, but he said it's low enough for us to think it's safe to keep that all intact. And that was nice because it felt like it was still me. Yeah, that's good that they're able to do that. I think there's probably, I just imagine there must be this process of accepting this other, this part of you that's being put back together. Oh yeah, and like it's heavier than the other side. And when I, I remember actually I went to a yoga class and I did this action where I lifted my arms straight up over my head and reached backwards. And I looked down and I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, this guy's just staying up all perfectly round and formed, and this one's sort of doing the normal thing, like flattening out. <laughs> so I was like, oh, it's, yeah, it's not quite the same. Obviously, MSC, I know a little bit about it, and I know that it can be very fatiguing, and there's lots of components to it. How did the cancer experience impact your it's called a flare when your symptoms start getting a bit worse. And I did have a flare prior to the surgery just because it's just such a stressful time. So MS is an inflammatory, autoimmune inflammatory disease that is affected by things that give you inflammation. And stress is a big cause of inflammation in your body. So yeah. that was something we talked earlier about slowing down and taking time. That was something that I had learned through my understanding of MS try and keep the stress down and do things that will help you. So what do you do when the most stressful thing in your life happens? You just go, oh, it's fine, no problem. <laughs> and so I did, I had some sort of intense vertigo where I couldn't I couldn't even really crawl along the floor. I had to lie on the ground for a while and then managed to crawl into bed and try and fortunately that went after I slept it off. And I had a bunch of other, I have, various sort of symptoms with pins and needles and numbness in my body that they increase. So some of those things got worse, but I was really anxious that it would get really bad. And my sort of, my MS nurse would check in. She's like, how cautiously she'd be like, how are you feeling today? Um, But just apart from that pre, so a couple of days prior to the surgery, it wasn't that good. But then after the surgery, I didn't have anything in particular, um, that was worse. I had problems with sleep, which can be MS, but it's that's also very related to all the drugs in your system from the surgery and that sort of thing. And I, that sort of dissipated after a while. I did various things to help with getting me to sleep. And I actually think that in some ways, like I said before, it's like the stress had gone once I'd had the surgery. I thought that after the surgery would be a really intense time, but it would, that was the point where you've surrendered to everything. There's no more decisions to be made. There's nothing more you can do except just try and slowly recover. And so it felt like I I could just, yeah, surrender to Wow. And so what's changed since the MS and, and the cancer diagnosis? I mean, we were talking before about, obviously, you're already taking the steps and you've moved into a small regional town. You're focusing on what's important with your daughter. Did things change more after the sort of that double whammy of MS and cancer? I'm sure other people that you've spoken to have said this, but you realise your mortality. So it's just right in your face that at any point you might not be here. 
Yeah. I think that's hard for anybody to come to grips with. But what I personally found hard about that was I thought, who, I won't be here to have time with my daughter, to do some of the, the things I wanted to do in the outdoors, to spend time with my husband. And, and I, so I found it quite hard and I found it hard to balance this idea of impending doom with joyfulness of each day because <laughs> it's live every moment with this kind of <laughs> lurking cloud behind you of you better live <laughs> so that was a bit of a, a sort of a journey and I think the way that I moved through that was to I really took a good hard look at the type of work I was doing to make sure that I felt that when I was working on something that had purpose and was really aligned with who I was and who my values were because every moment of work was time away from my family and so that I wanted to work and I, and that gives me a sense of direction and drive in my life but I wanted it to be of real value so I looked really hard at that and made some choices about who I would work with and what work I would do and also I've let go of things that were I, I used to do things because I thought that I should yeah, yeah, I did lots of things for um, my family, for the community, for work, because I thought I should. Yes, and that was what good people did. And if you were a good citizen, you did these things. And then I realised that if doing all of those things made me tired, sick, grumpy, upset, and the shit to live with, yeah. what was the point? <laughs> it was like I was giving all of that out to people that were not as important to me as my daughter and my husband. So I really had a look at that too as to where I was putting my time in and that gave me more space for rest and I began to value rest as a part of, of well-being rather than as a failure because I wasn't able to have enough energy for that day. So rest became as important as other things. Yeah. And I guess that in all of this, you have a husband, you've got family and friends. Have things changed in a dynamic or has brought people closer to you? Oh, that's a lovely question because I think that interconnectedness of humanity is such an, an integral part of mm. our overall well-being as a sort of a race, really. But so... I remember before my um, surgery, because we were here in Taupo, we moved relatively recently, we didn't have a strong network, I felt really alone. Yeah. I, like the lockdown was weird anyway, I just felt really isolated. And then when I came back from the hospital, I arrived in the front door and there were bunches of flowers everywhere. Yeah. And I just, I just floods of tears because I, it was this, I had thought I was on my own, but I wasn't. Yes. I had thought that nobody cared, but they did. I had thought that I was just this kind of another number running through the cancer train, but mm. I wasn't. And it was so wonderful to feel that and to feel that people that I didn't, some people I didn't even really know that well yeah. were doing things for me that were really caring. And I started to much better understand that idea that when you really have to ask for help, when there's nothing left and you're alone and you're saying, please, I really need someone to look after my daughter because I'm going to go and get cancer surgery. Yeah. 
people just rush to help you and they're more than happy to do it and in fact it makes them feel as good giving as it as it does for you to receive it. So that was a really good experience and lesson for me to then pass that on. And other things I've done recently, I've done things for other people. Before I've been like, oh, I'll cook them in wheel, but what if they don't like it? Or yeah. I would send them a card, but maybe I'll say the wrong thing. And then I'm like, it doesn't actually matter. <laughs> what matters is that you showed up and that you said, I see you. I see that this is hard for you and I care for you. It's so true. Someone was asking me recently, what can people do to support someone who's going through cancer or or something big? And I said, you just need to either reach out and let them know that you're thinking about them, do something really practical for them, yeah, cook a meal, take their kids out, clean their house. It actually doesn't have to be a big thing um, because I I think often you don't necessarily want to pour your heart out to everyone when this is going on, but having someone turn up with a meal, great. Yeah, that's yeah, just as loving. It is funny that pouring your heart out thing, eh? Because I think, like, we're supposed to be vulnerable and show all of ourselves, but that that can be very painful. And sometimes when you just say, "Oh yeah, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay," sometimes you want someone to say, "Are you sure?" But yeah. sometimes you just want someone to give you a hug and say, "I think you're doing awesome as well," and yeah. that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have quite a big goal at the moment with your enormous hiking, which I think is amazing. So tell us a little bit about what you've got. As when I, yeah, I've recently received some support through a grant called the Mastering Mountains Grant, and that's set up for people with MS or FND, which is another neurological disorder, mm. to take on a challenge um, that they may not have done um, without the support of the grant. And my what I've decided to do is to climb a 3,000-metre peak in the Southern Alps at the end of this year. Wow. Yeah. So I have done mountain climbing before, but not for a long time and, and not, not at this height in the Southern Alps. And also I haven't done anything after my two diagnoses, so the MS and the breast cancer of, of that scale. So one of the reasons I put it out there and applied for the grant, it was wonderful to get the financial support, but it was much more about me saying to the world, I'm going to try and do this. And then I kind of committed and I needed to follow through. And what's been really interesting for me is I did a bit of Googling about after breast cancer, after a mastectomy, can you go hiking with a pack? You know, how does that Mm. work? And what I realized is because it's much more common to get breast cancer when you're age 60 plus, when you're at that age, a lot of women who are hiking are not hiking these sort of longer trips. They're doing um, day walks or shorter trips. So I really struggled to find anyone my age that had cancer that was doing big hikes with with packs. Yeah. So I... I asked my surgeon, he's like, what does it feel like when you put a pack on? I'm like, I haven't tried it yet. And he said, just try it. So I just thought, okay, I'm just going to start. I'm going to start on this journey. I may never get to my goal, but I'm going to get further along that journey by starting than if I never even took the first step. And it's been a really good process for me with my mental health, my physical well-being, and thinking that, there is strength in me that I didn't, that I was unsure if it was still there. 
And I've just been going on, like I started with a really short, small trip and I got all my friends to carry all, most of the gear and I just had a light pack on. And then I just slowly progressed and, and I've got stronger as I've gone on and I feel really confident now on this journey that I, if it all goes well, if the weather's right and I'm not feeling unwell, that I should be able to do it, which is it's so huge compared to when I set out on this adventure. I genuinely was like... I have no idea of this. Are you documenting your process anywhere? Have you been blogging about it or anything? I'm a writer, but I haven't been blogging about it, which is not good. <laughs> but I've been doing a little bit on Instagram, so I'm on, people can check me out on at Katie underscore climbs. And I've been doing just a, a sort of each trip I go on, I've put a few things up about it. But I did think that's actually, yeah, one of the things I want to do is just share this journey a bit more with others and it's not to make myself feel good. It's just I feel I really struggled to find any information or, or inspiration about someone that had gone on the same journey that I have. If I can offer that to someone else, then I think it's a really powerful thing. And as a sort of a community of cancer survivors, that's where we find strength is in those sharing of stories and the learning. So it might be for someone else who has a different reconstruction or has had different things happen in their cancer journey, it might be, no, they they can't do a big pack, but hey, could they do an overnight walk with a light day pack and have their friends carry things for them? Or could they try out something like mountain biking when you don't have to carry very much on your back, but you're still really physically active, if that's something that they're keen to do. And so I guess, yeah, that's my hope. Oh, that's so awesome. Hey, thank you for sharing your story. It's been really interesting and heartening to hear what you've been through. It's really funny, I think, talking to people with cancer because I always just, I just feel so honoured that people share a story with me. And then I think, how do you say that? Because it's such a shit. It's so nice talking to you and all these. I I think it's really wonderful what you're doing because in the sharing of stories, we become stronger and we become able to look forward into a life that's positive and wonderful. So I think, yeah, I really appreciate having the opportunity to chat with you about it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. The C Word is every Sunday at 11.55am on Auckland's 104.6 Planet FM and anytime at www.planetaudio.org.nz forward slash the C Word.
And a 41 millimeter, you ain't even know it. Keep the 45 in my pocket, I ain't gon' show it. Till I have to pop it, then you gon' know it. Damn, who shot you, they don't even know it. Hawks game, fucking Floyd. CVC, front row it. Rock go to Dunn, CEO it. Ain't got a rapper, you know it. Know it. Nah. It's down all the best shoes, you don't even know it. It's down all the best lane, you don't even know it. Just have a million dollar car, you don't even know it. I came up from bottom, you don't even know it. You don't even know it. My niggas all right with me, you don't even know it. I got killers with me right now, you don't even know it. This million dollar watch, nigga, you don't even know it. Got a million dollar crib, nigga, you don't even know it. That nigga show you that re-rock, you ain't even know it. I die over these Reeboks, you ain't even know it. Put Molly all in her champagne. She ain't need no. I took her home and I enjoyed that. She ain't need no. Got a hundred acres I live on. You ain't need no. Got a hundred rounds in this AR. You ain't need no. Got a bag of bitches I play with on cloud nine in my spaceship. Zoned out, but he stay fresh from zone one through zone six. Bricks all in my blood. Birds all in my dreams. Boats all in my yard. Lemon pepper my wings. I'm about to get you fucked, niggas. Whack. You ain't even know your man about to turn his back. You ain't even know. It's down all the best shoes. You don't even know. It's down all the best lane. You don't even know. Just have me in my car. You don't even know. I came up from bottom, you don't even know. My niggas all right with me, you don't even know. I got killers with me right now, you don't even know. This million dollar watch, nigga, you don't even know. Got a million dollar crib, nigga, you don't even know. We turned up every day, you don't even know. Got your bitch with me right now, you don't even know. We turn up in the club, you don't even know. You don't even know. 
Just have me no car, you don't need no I came up from bottom, you don't need no My niggas all right with me, you don't need no Got killers with me right now, you don't need no This million dollar watch, nigga, you don't need no Got a million dollar crib, nigga, you don't need no